Well, tonight it's a privilege to turn once again to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6, we'll be looking at the first 23 verses. So 2 Kings 6, 1 through 23. One of the questions that's been asked many, many times through many, many years, probably decades, even centuries, is where is God in the midst of all the chaos? Now, an individual will sometimes ask that. Where is God in the midst of my personal travails and personal needs? Others, however, might ask where God is when considering the big picture of nations and war and everything else. Well, in these two events, the author who has compiled these historical details have given us answers that address both these questions. God is there in the small things. He is also there in the large picture. Follow along as I read chapter 6. This is in the midst of the ministry of Elisha. And here we have one of those small events and then one of the kind of humorous uh, big events in the life of Elisha and Israel and the people of God. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log. And let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. 
Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. As we consider these events so powerfully uh, detailed here in Scripture, let us come to the Lord briefly at a time of prayer. Lord, by your grace, help these words inspired by your Holy Spirit about your kingdom and your people. Lord, help them to fall upon believing hearts and hearing ears, that by your grace we might hear, believe, and apply them to our lives. Lord, I pray that everything spoken here will be consistent with your own word, lest others may be deceived. We pray that if they're not, they would pass away, not to be heard from again. In Jesus' name, amen. You know how it is sometimes when you read a large book, you kind of set it aside and then you pick it up and you set it aside again. I've been doing this with a book about Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of our country. I listen to it or read it for a while and I get interested in it and I take it down to the beach and read it and lo and behold I set it aside and forget about it for another couple of months before I pick it up again. And here I've been reading this book about this particular individual because like so many in his time, he professed to have faith in God and yet his personal beliefs, particularly as his life seemed to go forward, seemed to indicate that he did not follow through with his beliefs. In fact, we're told that there, were, and there was an influence or an influx of beliefs in a situation or a philosophy called deism. Deism was the idea that there was a God, a, a deist, yes, in that sense, they believed in that, but they believed that when he created all things, he kind of wound up the world and let it go, perhaps not to really intervene in the everyday affairs of men again. In other words, even though there were some founding fathers who were devout believers and understood the things of God and believed in scriptures wholeheartedly, yet there was another group of individuals largely influential on our early documents and the setting up of our government who doubted the continued intervention of God in the world after creation. They struggled to see his power even in the midst of unusual circumstances on the world stage. After all, it was rather shocking that America got Britain to leave the United States of America. They were overwhelmingly the better and more organized power, and yet the Americans prevailed. And yet, despite these circumstances, Despite the fact that the early days of the country, the country was in such debt, there was no reason why they should still exist as a country. Yet these individuals thought that God was so far removed 
that the affairs of men were largely let go without divine intervention. But this passage is really opposed to that viewpoint, isn't it? God is the God both of small things and of large things. The first one is about the small things, the everyday life of God's people. Here it is. There's a house where the prophets are staying. Evidently, whether they live there all the time or whether they just uh, were educated there or fellowship there or whatever it was, their house was growing, and so they needed a larger building to house them. So they tell Elisha, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. This is everyday stuff. They're just going over to the Jordan. We don't know where they are, how far a distance it's going to be at that particular uh, point in time. Maybe it's Dothan, that's described here in the next uh, section of scripture. Maybe it's back in Gilgal, as many would say. We just don't know. But they're going on a little trip to go and knock down some trees cut them down, and bring back the logs to build a bigger house. In that sense, we're reminded God is good. God is good because he's causing their faithful people to grow. This is one of the few faithful remnants in the state nation of Israel at this point in time. Remember who's in charge here. The house of Ahab, probably Joram, his, uh, one of his sons at this particular point in history. And for the most part, the people of Israel are now worshiping the gods around them, the Baals and the Asherahs. They are worshiping those who Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, put up and said, these golden calves are the gods who brought you out of Israel. So by and large, the people of Israel are unfaithful to God. But here, <coughs> here excuse me, is one of those small groups of people who are faithful to him, and God is causing them to grow, thus the need for a bigger house. God is good. Then we get to verse 3. One of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And Elisha answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. Now, of course, we just skip over that part because that's not the amazing part of this story. And yet, what would have happened if Elisha had not gone? Would they have been able to save this particular axe in this particular circumstance? You see, in this, even in these small details, God led one of these young prophets to ask Elisha if they would go with him. God, in this sense, is omniscient. He knows what is needed in every circumstance, even before the circumstances take place. Elisha's presence, his necessary presence, was foreseen by God, and he prompted this young prophet to ask Elisha to come. But of course, that's not the heart of the story, is it? Here's what happens. They're doing this everyday thing, cutting down the trees, ready to build this house, Verse 4 says, so he went with them. They cut down the trees. Verse 5, as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, ah, or alas, my master, it was borrowed. You think, so what? Go buy an axe down at the hardware store, right? 
You know, don't worry about it. Just pay the money to replace what has taken place. But if you know the context of the story, these prophets were in extreme poverty. They couldn't provide for their families if something went wrong. In fact, in chapter 4, there are three different stories of how God was providing particularly for the prophets and their families, a miraculous feeding of a hundred of them, oil that would not run dry to help one of the widows of the prophets. Here it was, these were people in extreme poverty, and it tells us that God is merciful. He provides for his people even in small, everyday needs. Why was it such a big deal for this prophet to have this axe fall in the water? It's because he had no means by which to pay for it or replace it. Now, it's interesting, if we go way back to the 19th century, one commentary that's pretty common among Reformed believers, Keel and Delich, who wrote on this particular thing, said this axe was not necessarily borrowed, according to this word, it was begged. In other words, they didn't have anything in which they could put down to borrow this axe. They just had to beg somebody to give it to them. They didn't have any means of replacing such a thing. And it was, in one sense, a small need, because this is just an everyday thing. It's just an axe. There were probably other people who might have had some kind of instrument by which to cut down these trees. Perhaps this was the only axe. I don't know. But it's also a big need. If you're the one in extreme poverty who has no possible way to replace this instrument, particularly if it was borrowed and they had to give it back, this could result in someone calling out on this loaned tool and having them go into such poverty that they might be in danger of selling a child. So this is a big need for the one in extreme poverty. And yet, what happens? When he showed him the place, this is verse 6, he had asked where did it fall. When the man showed him the place, he cut off a stick, threw it in there, and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Now it's interesting. Commentary writers who don't believe in the supernatural try to moralize, allegorize, whatever it is they can to get away with the idea that he could make iron float. In fact, there are those who would say, well, uh, Elisha just knew how to somehow get that stick and get it in the hole of the axe head and get it out of the water, or maybe get it to a shallower part so the guy could reach out and touch it. But that's not what Scripture says. It says he made the iron float. I don't know about you, but I can't do that. It reminds us that God is omnipotent. This is the miracle, the miracle of the floating iron. And yet it reminds us that God is the God of the everyday and of the needs of his people. You see, it reminds us that God provides for his people. So I said, I can't make iron float. Can you make iron float? You know, it kind of sounds like a children's science experiment or one of those amazing feats or things you might read about in some science article or on some children's TV program. We know that people try to explain these things away, but the point is not so much 
that we should take this in some kind of uh, allegorized way or find some kind of moral meaning in the text. It is a simple, straightforward miracle of God to display that God will go to extreme lengths to provide for his people. You see, we can honestly tell someone, because of this type of text, if you have a need that is overwhelming to you, and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God will hear your prayer. He may not make iron float. He may reveal to us that what we think is a need is not necessarily a need for us, and he might say no. But we know that if it's in his design and his purpose, he can do amazing, supernatural, powerful things for the sake of providing for his people. God is the God of small things. But the next story reminds us that God is the God of large things. You know, this is kind of a humorous story, if you really understand what's going on. I've divided this up for you in four different scenes. The first scene is verses 8 through 10. And in this scene, you have the war room of Israel's king. Here's what's going on. The king of Syria was warring against Israel. He took with his servants took counsel with his servants, saying, such and such a place shall be my camp. In other words, what he's doing is he's sending raiding parties. And he's going from one place to the other to send these raiding parties to take them by surprise. This is kind of like guerrilla warfare of some sort, or those parties that would raid from the desert into a populated area. In fact, it's kind of funny. This is one of those idioms in Hebrew that I, I love to tell people. The such and such a place is, is the words almoni, or poloni almoni. And here it says, hey, he's just sending them out to these places, this place or that place. And yet, we get the war room not in Syria, but in Israel. But the man of God, again, this is Elisha, the descriptive words here for Elisha in this text, sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going, <coughs> excuse me, are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. You know, this is so funny. My son is going into Army intelligence. Perhaps some of you know that. My niece is also going into Army intelligence. She's right down in Arizona, the same fort where my son is, the cousins together. I know that her job is she's going to be tasked with analyzing information. She's going to be one of those people that probably sit at a desk and get all kinds of information, become an analyst of some sort to try and determine what that information means, all this intelligence that they gather and so forth. And imagine that there are hundreds, if not thousands of people in our military who every day are analyzing all this intelligence and data in order to know what's going on in the world and how our country should reply. And of course, you know, in the days of Israel, they didn't get quite so much intelligence. They didn't have quite so much to look at, but they would have had many counselors. And they would come together and they would look at the maps and they would look at what the scouts had brought them and they would look at all this information and try to determine what it means to fight these battles. But Israel needed a one-man intelligence team. In fact, he's a one-man defensive intelligent team. He's revealed by God 
where this camps are or where these raiding parties are going to go and these army camps are going to go. And he tells the king, and the king, by the grace of God and by the revelation given to Elisha, as Syria plans these raiding camps, the Israelis then are warned to provide defensive camps. Notice what it says. It says, And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Then he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. Instead of passing by a place where he thought this wasn't a place to put a defensive encampment, instead, because Elisha knew by God's revelation that this was the place where the Syrians were going to come, instead he stationed some soldiers there. So when the raiding army came, instead of an unsuspecting people, instead... He got a camp that was there to oppose them, and they would have to leave. What a, what a wonderful way to fight a battle. And this happened, it says, not once or twice. In other words, it was a repetitive series of events. So here's the king of Syria planning a raid. He's going to plan it in this area, and they go to this area. Lo and behold, here is an Israelite encampment where they can't go and complete their duties. They come back unable to do what they were called to do. That's scene one. Scene two is this. This is in the war room of Syria. Now you can imagine the king of Syria planning these things and all the secrecy. You know, this was top secret stuff in their government. Uh, only those who were in the council of the king would have known the location except for the commander going out into the field telling the soldiers at the last minute, follow me. It says the mind of the king, it's really the word heart, the heart of the king was greatly troubled because of this thing. He called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, which of you is a traitor? And this is logic, isn't it? If we think that the enemy knows everything we're about to do, you would logically assume that this is a traitor amongst you. But perhaps the most amazing thing, I think, in almost this whole story is this next verse. Verse 12, one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. How in the world did the servants know about Elisha? How did they know? Doesn't tell us. I can't say here's how they know. Is this perhaps Naaman's testimony? Coming back to Israel, recognizing there's only one true God and the power that he displays. Is it because of the servants, those that they had captured like the little girl in Naaman's household, those that they had captured and were testifying to the prophet of God in Israel, Elisha? We don't know. But for some reason... One of those in his council, probably one of the individuals in the intelligence community of the king, was able to say, none of us are traitors, but there's a man in Israel, a prophet of God, who knows the very words you speak in your bedroom. This is a display of God's omniscience. He knows everything. He's able to reveal to his people even the most mundane details of the coming battles of these kings. And I have to say, I think this reminds us of God's provision 
there is someone in Syria, a pagan country, the enemy of the people of God, who is able to testify to the power of God, the God of Israel, the true God of heaven and earth, to this pagan king. God's provision is such that we can always ask this question, who is in the line of testimony? You see, behind Paul, there's an Ananias, isn't there? Ananias used by God as an instrument to tell him and work with him to disciple him as a new believer in Jesus Christ. In God's providence, it took many evangelists through history to give the people in this room the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps it was someone who gave them to you, the first person in your family who believed in Jesus Christ. Perhaps it was someone a hundred years ago who came to your relatives and told them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that now there are those in your family, perhaps even unbelievers, who can say, oh yeah, I remember what was taught to me about God in the Bible. Here it is, God's power and presence his omniscience among all the people of God, upon all the people of the world, to give them the testimony that God can do amazing and powerful things. But that's not the end of the story, is it? The king says, again, logically, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So here the king logically seeks to capture Elisha. He's going off to Alabama, after all, Dothan. No, he's going to the Dothan in Israel near Samaria, about 12 miles, we think, from the actual city of Samaria. And so here he is. He goes with a great army. Notice what it says. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. He was not going to let any reason for not capturing this guy take place. He's just a prophet. He's not armed. He's not in a military encampment. He doesn't have any ability to defend himself. The king of Syria is taking no chances here. He's surrounding him with a great army of the takes of the day, horses and chariots. And here he is going to capture Elisha so that now he can succeed in battle. That's scene number two. Now we get scene number three, verse 15, at Elisha's residence in Dothan. What would happen if this great army, this great military retinue, came to your house and surrounded it? Can you imagine if all the military's power came and surrounded your residence and your community? What would you think? Well, the servant of Elisha had a pretty logical response. He rose early in the morning, went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He was afraid. This is logical fear of Elisha's servant. You know, this is what we would do. If this happened to us, we would be afraid. Excuse me. We would wonder what we would do. What would we do in that circumstance? There, there's no one to help us. It's not like we can say, call to the city next door and say, send, send your military over to help me. 
You know, I, I live in Avalon in, in, in Carolina Forest. There's about 700 houses over there. I can't call to the next little community down the road. Okay, send all of your soldiers and your tanks over. We've got a problem over here in Avalon. No. This was logical fear. But what does Elisha do? He says, don't be afraid. You know, this is probably the most repeated command in all of Scripture. Don't be afraid. When the angels come, don't be afraid. When you go and experience difficult experiences, don't be afraid. When you encounter the divine power of God, don't be afraid. He says that because he's filled with faith. This is the faith-filled calm of Elisha. And he has reason to be calm. Elisha, after all we know, has the double spirit of Elijah. He has been given the office of prophet where he's filled with the spirit of God and he can see and discern things that perhaps even those other believers around him cannot. And so Elisha prays. First of all, he gives a statement of God's protection. Do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with him, with them. Now, I have to say, when you first read that, and you're thinking about putting yourself in the shoes of the servant, I think the servant's thinking, yeah, right. He doesn't see anybody on his side. He sees an army on the other side. And, you know, sometimes I think we in the church, we do that when we look out at all those who oppose the scriptures and oppose the God of the universe. We look around our culture and our society and we say, how can we possibly compete with that? How can we possibly, when all of, uh, all of society seems to be falling against us and commending what is evil, condemning what is good, and looking at believers and Christians and calling them the nuts and the crazy ones and all of those things, and we look at that and we say, how can we possibly survive? There's more with us than there are with them. Elisha prayed. A consistent part of this passage. Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This statement of God's protection is also given the display of God's omnipresence. His power on display as well as his presence with his people. This is consistent with scripture. If you go back to Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, when Jacob comes to a certain place, he looks and behold, he sees the angels of God, and he even names that place encampment, a place where the army of God was. Jesus, when he's arrested in the garden, Peter draws out his sword, cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, and Jesus says, put that sword back in its sheath, because right now I could call down legions. In fact, he says here, 12 legions of angels. You know how many were in a legion? 6,000 soldiers. Jesus said, right now I could call down 72,000 spirits or angels to protect me. And yet, right now, at this time and place, it shall not be because Scripture would not be fulfilled. Right now, 
God has promised to be with us, even if two or three are gathered in his name, to be with us. God is present with his people. And here's what happens. What's going to happen to this army? When the Syrians came down against me, Elisha prayed again. Prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness. Elisha said to him, in accordance with the prayer of Elisha, and Elisha said to them, this is not the way, this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Now the army didn't even know who they were really looking for. They thought they were looking for Elisha. But evidently, God determined that what they were really looking for was the king of Israel. But in this display here, it's a reminder, the Lord's provision here of this dazzling blindness strikes them in such a way that they can move and get around, but they have no idea where they're going. This word for blindness is only used one other place in all of Scripture, and that's in Genesis 19 in the section where it talks about Lot and Sodom. The Sodomites are surrounding Lot's house, and they're asking to do unspeakable things with Lot. And God, through these angels that have visited him, the angels of destruction, strike the people of Sodom with blindness in such a way that they are fumbling around and can't even find the door. This is the same blindness that has struck the army of Syria by the power of God. Again, what does this display? Just like the display of the iron floating, so now this display of God's power displays his omnipotence. He is all-powerful. He can strike even an army with blindness so that they can't even find where to go. Elisha takes them and leads them 10 miles or 12 miles down the road. And then he prays. This is scene four. They enter Samaria. Here they are before the king of Israel, himself an unbeliever. The Syrians enter Samaria. They meet the king. God opens their eyes to the prayer to answer the prayer of Elisha. And they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Here was this army. They were supposed to go to Dothan to capture a prophet. Now they find themselves in the clutches of the king's army in Syria. You can imagine the fear that they must have at this point. This is not normal. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? You can kind of see the eagerness of the king. Hey, we've got them. We've got them, now we can strike them with a great, powerful strike against our enemies. And here's the surprise. You shall not strike them down. Will you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Instead, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he does. First of all, there's an unexpected confrontation. They went to arrest and capture Elisha and bring him back. Instead, now they're confronting the king and army of Israel. Assumedly, a larger contingent than this group that was sent out by the Syrian king. And instead of getting what they would expect, they receive mercy. This is the God of big things, isn't it? You know what's interesting here? Every single person in this story 
receives unexpected grace or mercy from God. The servant begins to see the protective power of God in the house of Elisha. Even the Syrian soldiers, under threat of their lives, God protects them and gives them mercy. And of course, the larger picture is God spared Israel from these raiding parties so that some of even the unsuspecting, innocent people, not even involved in the military, would have their lives spared. God is a God of great mercy. It reigns on the just and the unjust, we are told. And of course, the amazing thing is that the king actually does what Elisha tells him to do. He prepares for them a great feast. When they ate and drank, they, he were, they were sent away and they went back to their master. It says the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. How could the Syrians at this juncture be unaware of the God of Israel being the true God of heaven and earth? This is the point, isn't it? That God would do two things. He would first protect his people demonstrate his glory and power in doing so, and on the other hand, show this pagan nation, along with Israel's pagan king, that he is the God in control of all things. These two events, the axe head floating and this story, serve to tell us that God provides for and saves his people, both small things and large things, resulting in God's power, God's knowledge, God's presence, all on display. It reminds us that we have a miracle-working, merciful, sovereign God. We can come to him in times of anguish. We may not be in extreme poverty looking to replace an axe head, but there's going to be a moment in your life, I guarantee, where you realize there is nothing that you can do. You are completely at the mercy of God. You can come to him in those times of personal anguish. He cares about his people. But we can also come to him in times of overwhelming, of national or even global turmoil. You know, we're always told on the news every night if you watch it, we're told about the next big blow-up that has happened, the next big scare that's taking place, the overwhelming things that are causing all of our people to hurtle down the road of destruction. And yes, that's true. We are hurtling down the road of destruction because of sin and depravity. But we have a God who intervenes in the lives of his people. He is in control, and he will protect and save his people by his power, his goodness, his mercy, and his grace. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for these stories which remind us who you are, what you will do for the sake of your people, and how you continue to intervene in the affairs of men that your purposes, your grace, your salvation will take place. Lord, help us to trust you, even in times of overwhelming fear, even in times when it seems as if the world has fallen apart. Lord, help us to trust you, because there are more for us than there are for them. In Jesus' name.